That's a very good question because the conservative party, when they were first elected, had hardly any interest whatsoever in foreign policy. If you look at the makeup of the conservatives, there was, there was no interest, there was no experience, which is why the first person that they made foreign affairs minister was David Emerson. They convinced him to cross the floor. And so then you look at the, the foreign policy record. And much of that foreign policy record, I think, was guided by domestic concerns, particularly uh, a much stronger support for Israel, for example. And if you look at the, uh, the Jewish vote in Toronto, I think that support paid off. And uh, I think the Jewish community is now one of those ethnic groups that is now in support. So don't expect a change in Middle Eastern policy. As far as Afghanistan, which is the most controversial issue, there wasn't much that divided. There wasn't much that separated the liberals and the conservatives on that policy. Almost, we talk about uh, hyperpartisanship and a lack of cooperation. There was a lack of cooperation in Parliament in the minority, except on Afghanistan. But, and there was a lot of coordination between the liberals and, and the conservative party. So uh, I think that's an issue. Why did we lose out on the Security Council seat? Because, frankly, the Conservative government doesn't care that much about foreign affairs and foreign policy. And what's interesting about that is when you hear some of the countries that, that voted against Canada and it was blamed on a drop in Canadian foreign aid, and they elected Portugal. Uh, Portugal is an economic basket case that delivers a minuscule amount of foreign aid. It was almost like they were punishing Canada for not being the way they always thought Canada would be, as opposed to rewarding Portugal. There's also a lot of bloc politics. So the European Union will vote for the European candidate. Okay? Canada is, you know, to, to uh, replay an old phrase, a country without a region. And, and so I think there was a lot of... UN politics involved in there. But quite frankly, the Conservatives aren't interested in foreign policy, and the elections weren't fought on foreign policy. Think about it. We were, were in a war in Afghanistan. It never came up in the 2011 campaign, the 2008 campaign, the 2006 campaign, the 2004 campaign, and not at any of those four election campaigns did the issue of Afghanistan come up, and yet we've got people dying over there. We also started and are engaged in a war in Libya. Now, you can call it whatever you want. You can call it, well, a UN peace operation or this and that, but I view planes flying over things and dropping bombs as being a war. Libya never came up. Right? If, if someone can tell me an international issue that was a major aspect of the, uh, of the debates, of the campaign, of the ads, then uh, it wasn't there. So I don't think Canadians really care that much about international politics. And, I, and as someone who does foreign policy, that, that distresses me. Uh, and those groups that do, you know, uh, are largely focused on um, sort of ethnic ties. So I've talked about the Jewish ties. I can also talk about the, the Indian ties. So Harper has got a clear pro-India movement. How can we see that? Well, we can see the signing of a nuclear cooperation agreement with India. We can see that with negotiations over a free trade agreement and an investment agreement. Well, our trade and investment with India is minuscule. You know, it, it's, it's a couple billion dollars a year. Even if you um, quadruple it, you know, it's, it's $20 billion a year, minuscule. But those things are very important to the Indo-Canadian community. Why do you think we have such an anti-China policy? Well, a lot of the Chinese Canadians here don't like the government of China either, right? So when you view 
The Harper government's foreign policy, don't look at it as an international policy. Look at it as domestic policy outside of Canada. So that would be my response. If we can also just get questioners to state their name. Yep. Thank you. T Terry Shillington here. Thank you very much, Duane, for a, a wonderful presentation full of thoughtfulness. <clears throat> I'd like to uh, take us back to the uh, Canadian unity issue because I, too, see that as, um, as a troublesome piece of the uh, Harper uh, uh, government. Mm -hmm. uh, and if we could make a couple of suppositions, let's suppose that the PQ do win um, a Quebec election and perhaps even a couple of terms, and somewhere in there there's liable to be a referendum. And let's suppose that the NDP can um, maintain some kind of beachhead in Quebec uh, <clears throat> beyond one election. Do you see the um, presence of Jack Layton and a, a significant um, uh, NDP presence in Quebec as being a factor in a, in a hot, hotly fought uh, referendum debate? Any party that has a majority of MPs from the province of Quebec will be a major force in that debate, whether they're the government or not. So imagine a – let's take your assumptions. And I'll, I'll accept the assumption about a PQ victory. I think that's definitely likely. Referendum, I'm not so sure. And the reason for that is when, they're, when the PQ have their conferences, their party conferences, and they're only speaking to themselves, they talk a lot about sovereignty. When they walk out of the room and they talk to the rest of the province, they kind of downplay sovereignty. But that doesn't mean anything once you're elected. You know, that, right? that can always crop up. Um, and so if there's a referendum and you've got the NDP under Jack Layton with a majority of the seats in Quebec, he's obviously going to be a big voice. You know, if they'd only had one seat or two seats or three seats, less of a voice. But he's got 57 seats. So he would be a big voice, and I'm not sure about the Quebec strategy. I'm not quite placed where they are. He talked about reopening the Constitution. No one wants to reopen the Constitution. Not in Lethbridge, not in Montreal, right? Uh, they tried that under, under uh, Mulroney. Uh, it didn't work very well, and we saw, you know, years of, of constitutional strife that went from that. Uh, the other is I don't think they've really thought through their Quebec strategy. I think he would be as surprised as anybody. I mean, when they were campaigning, they thought, well, we got Thomas Mulcair. We got one seat. Let's see if we can get six seats. If we can get six seats, oh, my God, like we have really accomplished something. Now he's got 57. And I'm not sure there's a lot of constitutional thinkers in that Quebec NDP caucus, you know. Uh, so we'll, we'll, we'll have to see. But it, but it is dangerous to start talking about reopening the, the, uh, the Constitution. Um, the other thing is, is the NDP campaigned in the outside of Canada. They want a more centralized government, right? You know, uh, daycare programs, uh, things like that. Like, those are large, central government, centralized programs under Ottawa. And yet, when they're campaigning in Quebec, they're saying the exact opposite. Now, they would not be the first party to say one thing in English and another in French in this country. Uh, but I don't think the NDP really have a fully thought-out Quebec strategy because they've never been in that place before. We'll have to see if that, if that changes. Uh, but I do have concerns about, about the national uh, unity issue longer term. It's never going to go away. It's a fact of Canadian life and has been pre-Confederation. My name is Frank Toth. I hope there's other questionnaires behind me because I normally bring up the rear. I've watched you on television, sir. I've been on radio. I couldn't quite squeeze in. 
some questions. All okay. Right. Well, now you've got a mic. All right. Uh, I, I'm not classed as a naysayer. I've been researching writing for over 75 years. Yeah. Numerically speaking, the election isn't success, the successful as you portray. The conservatives got 26% of the votes that voted, mm -hmm. okay? It tells me that 75% don't agree with them, all right? Okay. But our electorate, election system, he'll fight that with life, mm -hmm. okay? I want to know, I want to know uh, uh, why you think uh, he was defeated in the United Nations, thrown out. Uh, has his parentage has his parentage and the effects, the true uh, written steel in steel agreement, uh, the NAFTA agreement had anything to do with it. Because there's a clause in the NAFTA agreement, there will be no environmental change. He can't change it. Is that the reason he got thrown out? Most people, Canadians, that read a little, mm -hmm. uh, educate themselves a little, uh, know that that is the reason he is hated around the world, okay? Mm -hmm. So anyway, uh, I appreciate the glowing terms you talk about conservatism, okay? But the conservative was John, De John Diefenbaker, okay? He mm -hmm. typed his last drop for Canada. Mm -hmm. He would allow 7,000 corporations to be sold out okay. in tradership, okay? I'm asking okay. you now, okay. What, okay. What, what do you think? What do you think a change in the electoral system would do? Uh, how far are we ahead to change the most antiquated system in the world? Okay, you, you raised a whole bunch of, of different questions there. Uh, I'll start. Okay, uh, if uh, if I focus on electoral system reform, uh, you're making a big leap by saying that everybody who didn't vote. Uh, would have voted against Harper, and, and I'm not convinced of, of that. The fact that, and I'll give you the simple answer, the fact that they didn't vote means we don't, we don't know. Uh, there's a lot of people, uh, it's, it's tough to assess things that don't happen, but, you know, maybe people didn't vote because they like the, the status quo. But on the electoral system reform, this has been an ongoing battle. But what is interesting is Britain just had a referendum on electoral system reform. It was part of the coalition between the Conservative government and the Liberal Democrats. The Liberal Democrats said, we'll support the Conservatives, but we want a referendum on changing first-past-the-post to PR. It went to the people. The people voted against it. In the province of British Columbia, they had a referendum to change the, uh, the, the electoral system. The people voted against it. In the case of Ontario, they had a, a referendum on changing the electoral system. The people voted against it. So those are three examples of very similar systems where you had the first past the post, an option to change, and a decision not to change. And so I think uh, that's there. I do accept the flaws with the current electoral system. You know, 40 percent of the votes does not get you, should not get you 60 percent of the seats. But we could have said the same thing about the Liberals under Jean Chrétien, the Mulroney government, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, I think those are, those are the statements. The question is, if we changed electoral systems, what would that do to the nature of, of Canadian politics? And we simply don't know. Changing the electoral system is not a, a magic bullet. They changed electoral systems in New Zealand, and it had an unfortunate consequence. Uh, you, they were tired of these... Uh, liberal, which in, in New Zealand terms was conservative, so a liberal party versus a labor party. 
Um, and they wanted electoral change to create more opportunities for, for third and fourth parties. And they were able to do that. Now they have minority rule, and the party that swings the vote is a party called the New, England, or the New Zealand First Party, uh, which is a really anti-immigrant reactionary party that was able to win three or four seats, anti-aboriginal party, and that's now the swing votes. So, you know, when you start changing uh, electoral systems, you don't know where that's going to lead you. So the, the two comments I would make is we've had two referendums in Canada on it. Both were defeated, and we simply don't know where we would go if we changed the uh, system. Uh, my name is Henry Heinen. I do watch you on TV, and I think you handle that very well. And it's too bad you didn't initiate the discussion with the policeman to tell him who you were and if you had any uh, syncretic credit built up with him before he issued a ticket and then told him he watched you on TV. <laughs> Next time, you've got to be much more proactive with ah. the vocabulary. <laughs> but anyway, I have three quick questions. First of all, with four Bloc Québécois in Quebec, any floor crossings, any offings in terms of your projecting your mind ahead? Secondly, can you talk about, a little bit about what Harper will do now with Senate reform? And thirdly, could you talk about adding seats in certain populous regions so that the balance is finally more even in terms of, uh, you know, the votes? And you take Alberta, B.C., yep. we have many more people than Quebec. They have 75 seats. We're probably seven shy of that. Yep. Please. Let's go in reverse order. Uh, answer the first question about uh, enlarging. Yes, I think that will occur. Um, and it should have occurred. Uh, my preference would be to keep it and to redistribute seats, but that's not the way we do things in this country. Uh, we see that in, in Alberta. It's too difficult to move around seats, so we simply make them bigger. You know, we, we add more seats. So I think we will be adding more seats. And when I talk about the, the demographic shifts in favor of the Conservative Party, um, actually, I don't think I talked about that. Yeah, when I talked about the, 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 the movement of the Conservatives becoming the natural governing party, again, whether you like it or whether you don't, um, that's a different story. But where it's moving is I did talk about the wealth, but I also talked about age. Older Canadians tend to vote Conservative more. Older Canadians tend to vote more. So that's a demographic advantage. The fastest rising population are those new Canadian groups. Uh, Indo-Canadian, Chinese-Canadian. That will increase conservative support. And where did I say their strongest support was? Alberta, B.C., and Ontario. Where are those extra seats going to go? Alberta, B.C., and Ontario. This was opposed uh, by the Liberal Party uh, on pretty weak grounds. Uh, it will be strongly criticized by Quebec because even though their population, irrespective of the rest of Canada, has been dropping, they, are, want, they don't want to lose more say in the Canadian Parliament. So it's going to be opposed by the province of, of uh, Quebec. It will probably be opposed by the NDP now because their base is in Quebec. But I think it's going to come because how do you argue against a system based on representation by population to be based on representation by population? There are some problems in Atlantic Canada like PEI. I mean, PEI has got population of Lethbridge and has four MPs, but that's constitutionally in there. You're not going to be able to change that. But by adding in Alberta, adding in BC, adding in southern Ontario, I think that will occur. Your second question was on Senate reform. Clearly, 
I think Harper wants Senate reform, but it's not going to happen because it's not something he can do with a majority in the House, and it's not something he can do in a majority of the Senate. It's going to require constitutional change, which means in some cases, 7 out of 10 provinces, and in other cases, 10 out of 10 provinces. So he can create conditions for an elected Senate, but he can't change the composition of the Senate without unanimous consent of the provinces. Right now, Alberta has the same amount of Senate seats as New Brunswick does. New Brunswick is smaller than the city of Calgary. Okay? Do you think the New Brunswick government is going to say yes to Senate reform? No. So if that's the case, do you think Alberta would support elected senators when there's a disproportionate number in other parts of the, province, uh, parts of the country? So um, Senate, the Senate. The Senate is the weather. We love to talk about it, but we can't change it. And, uh, and I think there was a... Th uh, crossing, the crossing the floor. I think that uh, we've seen cross-flooring to the block. It'll be very interesting uh, where those people go. My expectation is they may not cross the floor to another party, but they may go to the PQ. Uh, those that were there. Depends on how long they've been in the House. You want to be there at least six years, because six years you get your pension, right? So if you've already got your pension, then you might want to go to the PQ, because would I rather be in the government of Quebec or be one of three or four people not even having official party status in the far reaches of the House um, now that I've got my pension? If I don't have my pension, well, maybe I'll hang on a few more, a few more years. So I don't see as much uh, cross-floor. Uh, and I think uh, if, if you're the Conservatives, yes, you don't have a whole lot of seats in Quebec, but I'm not sure taking on a Bloc Québécois MP to do so would really do you in good stead, especially, you know, on that discussion on the coalition when he pounded on separatists, you know, you don't want to bring them in. Ed Bardock, <clears throat> I question your last comment about uh, the Senate mm -hmm. not having influence. Harper has moved the Senate to the point where he's got a majority of conservatives in the Senate. Mm -hmm. And even without constitutional change, over the next four to eight years, and I suspect it will be more like eight years, he will have complete control of the Senate because... Mm -hmm. I don't think even Jesus Christ, if he were a liberal, would be appointed by Harper. Yeah. The question I have for you, though, is you haven't commented on the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. Four judges are retiring. The Supreme Court in both Canada and the U.S. is a powerful force, mm -hmm. having more influence than I suspect even the NDP will have in the next parliament. Oh, without a doubt. The, the Supreme and Court is a powerful so body. The four Supreme Court judges he'll appoint... That will change this country. I'd like your comment on it. Okay. And secondly, seven aboriginals were elected. They're even considering, I understand, one of them possibly becoming the Minister of Native Affairs uh, in Canada. What impact will those two have? Okay. Uh, on Senate, just to, to go on about the Senate, um, you know, we, we've seen liberal majority senates as well, and we've seen liberal majority governments, and we've seen a liberal majority senate block 
um, conservative governments. And I'm not talking Stephen Harper. I'm talking Brian Mulroney. Um, so that sort of dynamic has existed at the beginning of Confederation. It will continue because we can't really change the Senate. As far as the Supreme Court, I believe exactly what you said. The Supreme Court is a very powerful body. Uh, if, if someone was to ask me, you know, what the checks are on a majority government, okay, it's not the Senate. The, the checks are our legal system, which includes the Supreme Court, and the role of the provinces. Or those are the major two checks. It's, it's a difficult question in the sense of Prime Minister has had full authority to appoint Supreme Court justices, and this has gone back ever since we created the court. By and large, those legal scholars that have looked at this, and I'm not one of them, but I have read their, what they've said, is it's been done in a pretty good fashion. We've appointed pretty good, competent Supreme Court justices, not tied to partisanship and things like that. What you're suggesting, I think, in your question is that would change under Harper. Uh, that is the way the American Supreme Court is appointed, where it is very partisan. And even though they have uh, uh, House oversight of that or Senate oversight of that, it's still a very partisan battle. Uh, we haven't seen that in Canada. And even if we did have oversight, even if we had to have parliamentary approval, he's still got a majority government. And so I think the only thing that we can rely on is past practice and the belief that the Supreme Court should be made up of the most competent people regardless of where they come from. So um, we'll have to see when those appointments come out just how, how true uh, that is. And there was a, a third point that you would – oh, the aboriginals. Uh, that's not a big um, uh, knowledge base that I have. I think it is significant that there's that many. And uh, we've never had an aboriginal as aboriginal affairs minister. Uh, I think we have a problem with the way we do aboriginal politics uh, in, in all sorts of different ways. But uh, I'm not converse enough to, to venture too far on that. I'm sorry. Well, we still have about eight minutes. If there's a couple more questions, we'll definitely entertain some more. Bev Mundell Atherstone, thank you very much. <clears throat> I remember last year when you said <laughs> we would have a string of minority governments. <laughs> um, it seems like um, Prime Minister Harper is the Teflon man. No matter what he does, it doesn't stick to him. And so I'm wondering, what do you think he could do that would reverse the current situation so that those um, uh, seats that were lost to the Conservatives by either the NDP or the Liberals would be reversed? So what, what, what could the Conservatives do that would lose the, the gains that they made? Absolutely. Yeah. One is, I think, opening up any social conservative issues. Uh, I don't think that's in the interest of, of the, the vast majority of Canadians. I think it's in the interest of some smaller groups that have ties to the Conservative Party, but I think that would be a tremendous uh, mistake on their part. I think they would lose support there. As far as Harper being a Teflon um, yeah, <laughs> I, if that can't be real hair, I, I'm sorry. You know, uh, that that's got to be a, a wig, and and he must. And this is how controlling he is. It gets a little bit grayer every day. So I think he actually designs that to to make sure he he ages. Uh, but here's the thing, you know, if if he's not a warm and fuzzy guy, and I knew 
Uh, I met Stephen Harper several times before he became prime minister. He was like that then. This is the way the man is. There are politicians. You know, if you were to bring a guy like a, a Jean Chrétien, a Brian Mulroney, a Bill Clinton into this room, within about two minutes, they would know everybody's name and would be your best friend. If we were to bring Stephen Harper in, he'd be in the corner drinking a cup of tea by himself. He's kind of the anti-politician politician. And so when people talk about you know, this, the liberals ran a demonizing campaign against him in 2004, and it worked. You know, he wasn't defeated. In 2006, you may remember those about putting soldiers in the streets. You know, uh, we can't make this up and all this sort of stuff. And, uh, you know, the, uh, that ad's been done. Right? There was a line I would use about, uh, you know, when you're, when you're trying to demonize somebody as a son of a bitch, and everybody knows he's a son of a bitch, and they don't care, I don't think it, may, it makes a difference. Right? Uh, and, and so, you know, those are where I say it, is where he could make the errors is by stretching too far, going too far, and ignoring his strategy, and it's a clear strategy. Uh, people say, well, he's got a hidden agenda, and I said, no, he doesn't. It's in this book called Harper's Team, written by Tom Flanagan, which outlines the entire strategy, right? It's not hidden, and, it, and it's conservative by inches, and that's his strategy. So why would he move away from that when he's been so successful and all of a sudden think, well, I've got this majority for the first time. Let's, let's try to remake Canada, you know, and he said that in one of his post-conference press uh, post-election press conferences when he says, Canadians don't like surprises. You know, uh, so I think, uh, and that's why I said in the, in the, in the, in the next four years, it's going to be a lot of stuff that he tried to do in the first five years, but he couldn't get through. Uh, now he can get it through. That's where I think it is. I, I, I wouldn't expect major surprises. And if he did, that's when the support would, would plummet. All right, last question. Um, just along that line, um, we've been subjected, first of all, to horrible slanders against Stefan Dion mm -hmm. and then against Ignatiev. Yep. What do you foresee the Conservatives doing now that they have this majority? Are we going to be subjected? More of the same. More of the same. Yeah. Against you, Leighton and the new oh, yeah. leader of the Liberals. Why? Because it worked. You know, it, mm. here, here's the thing. Like, um, people... In polling data show we hate negative ads. We hate them, but they, they work. And, but they only work if you tie into something that people already have doubts about. So I want to go back to Dion. They categorized Stefan Dion as weak. This was a Francophone Federalist in 95-96. That was not an easy position to be in. This was a man who suffered death threats, who had to have bodyguards through the streets of Montreal. You know, to classify him as weak, I think, was a fundamental falsehood. But it didn't matter. It worked. To criticize Michael Ignatieff for studying abroad, for living abroad, for working abroad, I think is an insult to most Canadians that have worked abroad and studied abroad. But guess what? It worked. And uh, so it was effective. They effectively were able to, to politically frame Michael Ignatieff the moment that he won the leadership, and he never responded. And he could have said, would you rather have someone like me who grew up in Canada, taught in Canada, did work in Britain, traveled the world, or would you want someone who spent their whole life in Canada and never traveled? 
right? He never made those responses. Would he say, are you then saying that anyone born outside of this country that moves here doesn't count? You know, all of those, but he didn't do that. He let himself uh, be attacked. And so if, you may sound, think that it's a flip comment that we'll see more of the same, but it worked, right? This is how they got here. And I'll also say, you know, um, the conservatives did not invent, you know, negative ads. You know, the liberal campaigns that I described going against Stephen Harper are, are the same sort of thing. The conservatives have become better at it. They are a very professional political machine. They know how to slice and dice the electorate. They have got databases you know, based on demographic profiles, riding profiles, and they tailor policies. Look at what they've done to the tax code. Stephen Harper is an economist by training. He should know better that a simpler, easier uh, tax code is better. It's more efficient. So why is he bringing in a tax credit uh, for children in sport, a tax credit for children in artistic uh, program. A tax credit for seniors. Why is he doing that? Because he's slicing and dicing the electorate. They've got the monetary advantage and they're using it. They are doing micro-level polling. They are doing uh, uh, demographic polling, riding polling. There may be some voter suppression that's going on. Maybe not, uh, you know, so they are a well-oiled political machine. And the liberals used to be the party of the well-oiled political machine, and they're not. And so I think that that sort of stuff will, will continue. All right. Well, uh, let's give uh, Dr. Brad a round of applause.